Epistemology is the branch of philosophy that deals with questions about knowledge. And every claim of knowledge, whether you're reporting something you claim to know because you've experienced it or you think you have or you read about it or you base it on what people are saying, there is presupposed in such claims of knowledge epistemological claims as well. When you claim to know, you claim to know also what is required in order to know. Epistemological claims can be raised regarding all areas of human knowledge, whether it's mathematics and logic, where you arrive at our knowledge a priori, that is by way of proofs that seem to circumvent the need for empirical validation, or in the different empirical sciences and theoretical physics and engineering and biology, theories of psychology, history, and in the arts and humanities. Wherever there are claims to knowledge, there are epistemological claims. In this way, all of our domains of knowledge, making epistemological assumptions simply in order to proceed, have some stake in philosophical issues. Their very possibility raises certain foundational questions. Usually, the practitioners in those fields don't need to concern themselves with these foundational questions. In fact, getting on with their work might be impeded by becoming distracted by these foundational matters because then they would get stymied in philosophy. It's a little bit like that old folk tale about the centipede who's asked by a spider how he manages to coordinate all of those feet, and the centipede stops and thinks about it and never takes another step again. But that doesn't mean that there aren't these foundational matters lurking in the sub-basement of the practitioner's endeavors. And that's where the foundational questions are, and therefore that's where the philosophers often are huddled down in the sub-basement, pushing away the cobwebs in an effort to clarify. The modern age is typically dated by scholars as beginning in the 17th century, christened by historians of ideas as the age of reason. It was the century of Galileo and Newton, of Descartes, Spinoza, Leibniz, Locke. All of these thinkers were co-conspirators in bringing down the teleological system of Aristotle, which had become fused with the teachings of the church. They all judged it unable to provide the kind of explanations that lead to real, genuine knowledge. The strength of the Copernican system, the way it was able to beautifully simplify the laws governing the motions of the planets, had a great deal to do with the top lane of the old system and the search for new foundations, even though this exposed the topplers to the charge of blasphemy. And this introduction of the subject of religion, the power of religion in those days, introduces yet another way in which religion was involved with the new focus on epistemology. That if I had a point to one single factor is most responsible for the emergence of epistemology as the preeminent preoccupation of philosophy in the early modern age, it would be the religious controversies that were unleashed with the publication in 1516 of the 95 Theses of Martin Luther, a professor of moral theology at the University of Wittenberg, Germany. These theses and attacking the indulgences that were sold by the Catholic Church as a way of doing penance for one's sins and thereby shortening the sinner's stay in purgatory went 
right to the heart of the most burning questions for a believing Christian. It's the religious version of the third of the orienting questions we had considered in chapter one. That is the normative question. How should we live? What are we supposed to achieve with our lives in order to live a worthy life? For a believing Christian, the answer is salvation through Christ. The crucial question then becomes, how are we to achieve salvation through Christ? Fail to achieve that, and it was all for not. And that was exactly the issue that Luther was addressing. He was charging the Catholic Church with duping the faithful by exacting sums for penance. He was asserting that, on the contrary, penance for sin can only be achieved in an intensely inner spiritually transformative act. And what the church was exacting from worshipers was useful only for the church's coffers. This moral theological difference, which pulled in the great powers of Europe, who were motivated not only by theology but power politics, exploded into the long and atrociously bloody wars that dominated Europe. The Thirty Years' War, for example, a religious war which lasted from 1618 to 1648, killed one-third of the population of Germany, twice the mortality rate of World War If people believing that some theological proposition P is true are willing to kill others because those others believe that not P is true, then one side or the other, or maybe both, are making a big mistake. They all must feel extremely certain that they know what they think they know to be willing to kill and to be killed for these beliefs. But some of them, or perhaps all of them, don't know despite their feelings of certainty. So shouldn't they all perhaps take a breather? an epistemological breather, and try to figure out what is required in order to know as opposed to merely, however fervently, believe. And that's exactly what Rene Descartes did. He took a breather, as he tells us in his famous work, Discourse on Method for Rightly Conducting the Reason and Searching for Truth in the Sciences. It's not irrelevant that Descartes, a Frenchman who more than anyone is responsible for bringing epistemology to the fore in the modern age, and for that reason is generally recognized as the first of the modern philosophers, was in the midst of fighting in the Thirty Years' War, in which he was briefly a paid soldier on the side of the Catholics. And one day he found himself in a nice and cozy stove-heated room, as he tells us in discourse and method, thinking about what is required in order to know, realizing that the kinds of grounds that he and everybody else he knew had accepted as constituting good reasons to believe weren't good reasons at all, and wondering what would constitute good reasons. There are three very fundamental epistemological questions. The first is simply, what is knowledge? How does it differ from mere belief? The second is, how do we acquire knowledge? Which capacities of the mind are the most epistemologically reliable? And the third is, are there any limits to knowledge? Are the questions that do indeed have answers, but those answers are inaccessible to us so that we just can't be right when we claim to know 
concerning these matters. The introduction of epistemology, and most importantly, this third question of epistemology, introduces the possibility of a new way in which we can sometimes make progress in knowledge, quite distinct from the kind of progress we get in science, but progress nevertheless, namely to come to know the limits of human knowledge, to know what it is that we just can't know. In the next chapter, we'll examine these three fundamental questions more closely, one by one, watching how the analysis of each gives rise to more questions, as so often happens in philosophical analysis, and how two opposing epistemological approaches, rationalism and empiricism, emerge from these questions.